I'm Kristen Rawls. And I'm Jeff Eaton. This is Christian Rightcast. It's a podcast in which we um, contextualize and explain the um, personalities, the ideologies, the groups and movements that make up the Christian right in America, um, which is, you know, it's a broad, fuzzy group in some ways, but um, it's there are common strains and common elements and unexpected overlaps uh, that we often find. And uh, this show is where we dissect and uh, and detail that stuff. And uh, sometimes it's fascinating. Sometimes it's horrifyingly depressing. But we, uh, well, we, <laughs> we try to make our way through. Um, so this is uh, episode 16. And we're trying a slightly different approach. Previously, um, most of our episodes had been like, like, you know, one segment of a multi-episode deep dive into a particular topic. This time, um, we're covering a couple of different topics in one episode, um, each one of which um, is probably going to be like a good um, first taste of one of the themes that we're going to be exploring in subsequent series, um, whether it's the connection between, you know, neo-charismatic movements and uh, far-right political groups or the, uh, the rise of, you know, the Christian publishing industry in mainstream genres and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, we're going to get a little bit of a uh, little bit of everything here. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. This this should be a little bit uh, of a lighter episode. Um, it's, we, <laughs> to clarify, it's still terrible. But. but we did just do several episodes about child abuse, I think, and so yeah, I, this should <laughs> at the very least it. Yeah, it, there will be at least some breathers between segments mm-hmm. to uh, yeah. sort of mm-hmm. you know have a soda take a contemplative walk and, and come back ready for more. Um, so uh, a couple of, a uh, couple of, you know, like recap uh, bits. Um, last month we, uh, we both appeared on the, I don't speak German podcast, uh, which was a lot of, well, I won't say it was a lot of fun because we were talking about uh, Doug Wilson and uh, the connections between um, Doug Wilson's like reconstruction wing of the reconstructionist movement and like neo-fascist movements in other parts of the far, uh, the far right. Um, Mm -hmm. And also uh, we had a chance to talk, uh, uh, well, to learn a bit more about the ivermectin uh, like horse dewormer (laughs) debacle that uh, members of like the intellectual dark web had been tangled up in. And it's, it's kind of fascinating because there's like a really strong strain of COVID denialism Uh on the religious right that Uh actually touches (laughs) that actually comes in. Yeah. And the, and the ivermectin is being pushed in, in some parts of the Christian right. But also, uh, we we got to when we in the episode where we talked about Doug Wilson and uh, and Andy Wilson, his son. Um, we got to uh, talk about a little bit about what we called the uh, the um, theological dark web um, and some of the the um, rhetorical uh, devices and and uh, intellectual styles that we saw in common with the intellectual dark web. So that was really interesting. And so please go listen to us over there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, um, 
And in in other podcasts, oh, you know, it, it was also a little bit, but we also got a brief shout out on uh, Behind the Bastards in late August as uh, host Robert Evans discussed the uh, the Josh Duger story and like the broader Bill Gothard cult that uh, you covered last year mm-hmm. or sorry, uh, earlier this year, <laughs> earlier not last year. No. Um, but uh, yeah, and it, it's it, it's again, I won't say it's funny, but it's interesting because it feels like there's sort of this uh-huh. cluster of when you're on the the covering terrible people beat there turns out there to be a, some... a lot of startling crossovers yeah yeah um, um and you wanted to talk about this uh podcast that christianity yeah. today is doing on the rise and fall of mars hill um i actually haven't uh, been been able to listen to any of those episodes yet um so- I looked through like the summaries and transcripts. I haven't had a chance to actually listen to them yet. So like I've, I've done uh-huh. a cursory skim. And for those who don't like know about uh, Mars Hill Church, well, <laughs> Mars Hill is one of those names like Bethel or uh-huh. Calvary or whatever that you will find like roughly half a bajillion churches in America named you know, Mars Hill or something like that. Or Acts, 20, uh, Acts 29. Yeah. It's, right. it's a reference to like uh-huh. a place, you know, a, a place called Mars Hill that's mentioned in the Bible where, you know, different, you know, people would go and debate the, the ideas of the day and, and you know, <clears throat> uh-huh. Christians were able to witness there, you know, Paul. Anyways, but the Mars Hill they're talking uh-huh. about uh, is a church uh, in Seattle that was founded by Mark Driscoll, who was sort of one of those icons of like edgy fundamentalism. Like yeah, he was a new- Cal- edgy Calvinist fundamentalism. Yeah, like of. he was a Calvinist and he was real big on like strict gender roles and like, you know, the the complementarianism quote unquote branch of things but also he was like big on mma and kickboxing for jesus and he would swear and drink and like yeah. he was one of one of that vibe but the, the he took a lot of his ideas from the uh from the reconstructionist um wing of christian fundamentalism it was kind of like uh, that theology a little bit uh, like watered down for mega churches, um, and, and so with with the uh, strict Calvinism of predestination and the you know, um, so and and he had some overlap too with with yeah. some Christian reconstructionists like he was he's friends with Doug Wilson, oh, um, of course, yeah, um, and. And not shocking. I mean, if you followed Mark Driscoll over the years, given his, um, given the way he seemed to approach everything from public communications to like, you know, anecdotes about his life that he related in his own books, it is not shocking that uh, he turned out to be like a huge authoritarian and abusive pastor. And like, he was essentially kicked off of, you know, kicked out of his church and the church folded, blah 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 blah. But yeah, I'm not. Sure, I'm, enough, I'm not for, sure how the podcast will be. I it is yeah. made by evangelicals. I think it's important and, to point that out. Um, and that, so that's actually what I find interesting about this because it seems to be covering how Mars Hill fell, but not necessarily coming to grips uh-huh. with the elements of like Christian fundamentalism that were normative. Yeah. In Mars Hill. Like, right. um, I think one of the quotes uh, in an episode 
that sort of jumped out to me was uh, it takes tenacity to plant a church, but unchecked tenacity has consequences. And I'm like, I don't think tenacity is really the problem no, with Mark no. Driscoll. <laughs> and it, it's like, you know, I, I think I, I, I do want to carve out some time for a deeper dive into that podcast, but like it, it uh-huh. certainly its framing seems to make like abusive authoritarianism sound like what if a good thing, but too much. And right. I think that's one of the things that it's interesting to watch um, certain groups inside of the Christian right in an attempt to like engage with critical movements like um, ex-evangelicals and even um, more moderate Christians that are inside right. of some of the same congregations and like what ground they're willing to cede and what stuff they sort of no true, no true Scotsman away in uh-huh. the discussions about these things are very interesting. But I, I, it's the first time I've seen like Mars Hill specifically tackled from um, you know, from a group of, you know, from a Christian right uh, sort of media entity of mm-hmm. Christianity today in size. So it should yeah. be interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, you also did an article on the Flux Network about uh, media companies being complicit in uh, sanitizing Christian extremism, which is a theme that has come up a couple of times on this podcast. Yeah, I guess I was focusing on the Duggars and the um, the way that um, secular networks like TLC made them seem like a wholesome, harmless, uh, family, just like everybody else with just some funny quirks. Um, when, like there's five times more of them than most yeah, families. Right. <laughs> um, when, um, you know, when, when the abuse uh, was going on with Josh Duggar and, uh, he was, uh, and, and he ended up, uh, downloading a lot of, um, child sexual abuse materials and uh being charged with with crimes so and um, yeah that like so yeah the 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 emphasis of that article i think uh was interesting it was basically like tlc is certainly not a quote christian organization but it was very much complicit in whitewashing what was going on because well i don't know i i also i don't think the people who made that show would have been very conversant in in what anything that was going on in the with the family um or or to be able to to uh really uh, translate or explain any of the, so sort of like yeah without a lot of deep understanding of like the quiverful movement at a time when it was even lower profile right like, it's it's unclear how they would have necessarily <clears throat> recognized the tells other than perceiving it as just a sort of interesting kitschy family or something yeah i mean and there's like a there are there are many scenes where there are infants like and they're they're doing blanket training which is this they uh sort of uh, it comes really from Michael and Debbie Pearl in their book to train up a child and um the the idea is that children as young like babies as young as six months old are like taught like blind obedience and put on blankets and their toys are like placed just slightly out of reach and if they they move off the blanket at all they get spanked. Um, and I, so the, so there were scenes where the kind that would be kind of in process and, 
Um, I, there wasn't, I don't think there was usually hitting on screen, but you know, like they, they were not able to like, <laughs> to let people know that abuse was going on, you know? Yeah. So, that, mm-hmm. oh, that is a heck of a book to train up a child. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in, in, in other general internet news, um, the You're Wrong About podcast also did a, a, a four-episode series on uh, Mike Warnke, which if you are a v- part of a very specific generational group inside of like Christian culture, uh-huh. you will probably immediately recognize that name and have really weird flashbacks. Um, he was a Christian co- stand-up comedian and fake Satanist in the uh-huh. 80s. Like, uh-huh. He claimed to have been the leader of a gigantic West Coast satanic coven that was like responsible uh-huh. for all kinds of horrible things at the height of the satanic panic and unraveling his claims and, you know, proving that essentially he'd made it all up and was just a grifter um, was sort of one of the big Christian scene stories of the day. Um, it I don't was, know how I missed it. Do you know what year it came out that he had... <sighs> early 90s um, I, I don't know i um we just were not a household that knew who this guy was um, yeah and, and the news was broken <clears throat> in cornerstone magazine right so right. like it ha- it was definitely more of like a counterculture music scene okay. Uh, okay it would be like rolling stone breaking news about like you know a, you know some public figure or something like that yeah did you um did you read his book back then no i didn't read his book it I, I had always been like weirdly put oh, off. Was, yeah, you 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 were kind of put off by him. Yeah, I was always like weirdly put off by his comedy uh-huh. tapes. I had gotten one of his like stand up comedy tapes, uh-huh. and it just seems to like weirdly whipsaw between very dark and like haha funny stuff, like haha you know church humor, and then like really weirdly dark stuff, and it just wasn't my cup of tea, and. Uh-huh. He that was when he wasn't necessarily really leaning hard into the claims about having been in, uh-huh. you know in charge of a satanic church. It was as the right. satanic panic sort of grew and became a bigger deal nationally was when he really sort of dove into that and even okay. became like a consultant to police departments and stuff like huh. that. Um, you know, because in the midst of the satanic panic, it made. One hundred percent sense to yeah. find random stand-up comedians who said, <laughs> "I used to be a Satanist. Ask me questions." Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting to see uh, that podcast do like a deep dive into his book, The Satan Seller, um, yeah. because at, at like that very specific narrow window of time, it was such a big deal in like the scene that I like uh-huh. knew of. Um, really. Yeah, but um, yeah, <laughs> but with uh, on that note, I'm, did you like grow up with his comedy? Or uh, no, I mean, I grew up with his comedy being adjacent. Like uh-huh. there were not that many Christian stand-up comics, right? And yeah. this was a period of time when you could like go to the Christian bookstore and buy cassette tapes okay. of new new albums, and there were also stand-up comedians cassettes okay. alongside them which huh that's i'm I'm dated right there but um but like yeah. <laughs> so i always like saw them but it was right it, 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 like it wasn't like my 
thing. Um, so I was only mm-hmm. like peripherally familiar with his shtick. And okay. it, it was off-putting enough that he was always just sort of in the periphery in my mind as like one of those people who's well-known and is like raising money for this thing that he's doing. And mm-hmm. he's, you know, got his foundation that he's, you know, that's trying to do something. And, and then when that news story in, in, you know, Cornerstone magazine broke, it was like, Oh, that's wild. You know, it yeah. turns out he basically just sort of left the army and drifted around California and, you know, finally ended up, you know, trying to do stand up. And there wasn't really any time for right. him to have been, you know, women he had dated, I think came out and said he wasn't, he wasn't doing any of those things. Yeah. But... Sort of like if he was like running a, you know, giant, giant coven and performing sacrifices nightly like uh-huh. he really was an amazing like multitasker <laughs> yeah right. so um and he, i guess he he was big like around the time like michelle remembers the book of the uh, oh, yeah came out um and that was used by real psychiatrists and by i mean um, yeah, it, that like tangles up with the whole like satanic panic thing uh, and yeah, the, right. like the the whole concept of like being convinced that the world has this giant hidden network of like satanic child abusers yeah. who are in positions of power and use their power to cover up each other's wrongdoings uh-huh. and we always have to be on guard, you know, to spot the satanists and i remember that being even though like mike warnke wasn't like on my personal radar a lot like that broader context was absolutely there because things like that Uh were an article of faith in a lot of parts of like evangelicaldom even outside of the like the more you know hardcore you know right-wing groups at the time i think that was Uh and and you know in previous episodes we've talked about how the kinds of like that kind of mindset translated almost directly over to like evangelical and um you know sort of christian facebook you know facebook aunts and uncles getting deep into like the pizza gate and q conspiracy stuff mm-hmm. yeah because so much of the narrative groundwork had been laid during mm-hmm. the satanic panic oh but, yeah yeah it's just a continuation of the satanic panic the yep it, it's stuff. so sort of like how they just keep retelling spider-man's origin story over mm-hmm. and over but, yeah uh, yep Okay, so, so we were going to talk a little bit about some overlap between um, between uh, sort of neo-fascist groups and, and the Christian right. Um, via the unexpected COVID denialism angle. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about um, a little bit about Sean Foyt, who is a leader in the in a sort of broadly, loosely defined coalition of um, of Pentecostal charismatic uh, people calling themselves the new apostolic reformation. Now, were you going to say a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So it's um, you, 
if you've heard of the New Apostolic Reformation, you probably are already like someone who follows like new religious movements or is like neck deep in like, you know, right wing Christian charismatic culture, which is yeah. like three narrowly sliced <laughs> subgroups. Uh-huh. Um, but it's basically like the New Apostolic Reformation is basically like a movement that sees itself as establishing like a fifth branch within Christendom. Uh-huh. Like, you know, there's Catholicism, there's Protestantism, um, there's um, Eastern Orthodoxy. And I and I think there's technically there's also Oriental Orthodoxy, but I'm not as familiar with it. Um, and it, it, like the New Apostolic Reformation sees itself as like a fifth wing. Um, and it's huh. mostly non-denominational churches that like split off from or were nominally associated with like charismatic and Pentecostal denominations mm-hmm. uh, for a long time. Um, right. And if they're like names like uh, C. Peter Wagner and Rick Joyner and Kenneth Copeland mm-hmm. are some of the preachers or writers uh, that are sort of movers and shakers in that movement. Kenneth Copeland is probably the only one that, you know, a lot of people who aren't like deep in the scene would probably even recognize. Yeah. Um, he's been around for decades. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. And like, there aren't many organizations that are part of the New Apostolic Reformation. It's just sort of like this blurry smear of crossover inside of the broader charismatic movement. Um, And, you know, we've touched on that before, like the idea of like non-denominational charismatic churches being this sort of weirdly affiliated, like no real, like there's no real accountability structure that you would right. that you would see in a normal denomination like the baptists or uh-huh. something like that that doesn't uh-huh. mean you know accountability systems and you know denominational systems don't mean that something is like good per se yeah, yeah but it's a very specific kind of weirdness that can emerge when you've got this like giant pool of essentially like loosely affiliated churches that don't really have any kind of central governance model they're just out there um and one of the really big points of new apostolic reformation theology is the idea that like two specific roles ought to come back in modern churches so like there are roles in the bible like pastor and deacon that Uh you know were literally like paul talked about them as new churches were forming in you know in bible times and those roles have carried over today like even Uh what kind of responsibilities a deacon has versus a pastor. Um, But there are also two roles that the New Apostolic Reformation thinks should come back that were talked about in the New Testament, but aren't there now. That's apostles and prophets, Uh Um, which, you know, when, when you're, when you think about those fact that those were official roles or at least, you know, kinds of roles that existed in the Bible, there aren't that many prophets at most churches just technically way more deacons (laughs) than prophets. Um, And there's also like a big emphasis as you might expect, given like the, you know, the, you know, groups that uh, this comes out of, there's a big emphasis on like miracles, healing prophecy, Mm -hmm. you know, like not just telling the future kind of prophecy, but like, um, We'll, 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 we'll touch on like what constitutes prophecy, in a little uh-huh. bit, but like you know, those kinds of like miraculous direct God directly intervening in day-to-day life stuff, not just, yeah, we talk about scripture and things like that. They're also dominionists um, uh-huh. in the sense that 
they believe earth is like Satan's territory, but Christians can reconquer it for God, like home by home and city by city with spiritual warfare. Like, and they would call it seven mountains theology, right? Yeah, so, that that's actually yeah. like a specific, yeah, that, that's, that's one of the key catchphrases that like is used to refer to this idea that there are, you know, parts of the <clears throat> earthly domain that like Christians are called to bring under God's dominion. And the this seven is- mountains are things like home and schools and you know and it's really a a sort of a pentecostal charismatic um sort of uh interpretation of reconstructionist dominionism yeah it's got Mm -hmm. way less of an emphasis on like let's literally take over the you know government and Uh dissolve the federal and make it you know local it's nowhere near as i'd say like rigorous and organized conceptually (laughs) um which Uh yeah like if if the classic reconstructionists like doug Uh wilson are sort Uh of the you know the highfalutin we want to be the intellectuals of the movement Uh like um this feels like the montessori school of the movement um (laughs) Like it, it's it's a little unorganized. There's a lot of enthusiasm, you know. But yeah. you know, it, it's it's a little more chaotic. Um, but they've had a they're sort of a lot yes. more well known and have had a lot of like uh, interactions with the Trump administration, yes. right? And, and that's so, yeah. actually what's interesting, and that's where this yeah. this like very specific movement has gotten a much higher profile outside of the normal like theology scuffles where like fringe charismatic groups yeah. usually show up mm-hmm. um yeah and- so paula white who was a, a, a important uh, like a spiritual advisor to trump was is is a is a leader exactly. in that movement right and yeah like the whole there's a whole cluster of like teachers you know writers uh-huh. speakers who in like the mid 90s um like the the group that i was a part of got pretty deep into what is now called the new apostolic reformation uh-huh. back in the early to mid 90s via okay. like prophetic movements and prophetic teaching in the somewhat less extreme pentecostal denominations like assemblies of god and stuff like that ones that have always had a big emphasis on like the speaking in tongues and you know the the more visible i'll say showy aspects of like pentecostalism Uh um but as this movement sort of coalesced in that time frame and became more um concretely um focused on that idea of like seven mountains dominionist theology Uh right um it became it you know not shockingly also became somewhat politicized and interestingly enough that also overlaps with like 9-11 when a lot of churches were suddenly doing things like you know having sunday services where they showed like you know video clips of you know f-15s and the american flag Mm -hmm. flying and stuff like that like that was a key point where i think that this new apostolic reformation movement Mm -hmm. um got sort of an infusion of Christian nationalism uh-huh. um, just via osmosis, even if it wasn't sure. something that they initially dis- wanted to bake in. But 
as you might expect, things really got kind of wacky when people with no formal governance or accountability model decided they were literally hearing God's divine words and passing them on to others and should have the title of prophet in yeah. the churches. Um, yeah. And it also became highly politicized in like like the prophetic movement, a lot of those high profile quote prophets um, backed Donald Trump and uh -huh. issued basically like daily prophecies on YouTube during his time in office talking about how he was going to be like God's anointed servant to save America uh. and stuff like that. Um, there's there's a cluster of, you know, folks like Cindy Jacobs and Lance Walnaw who, uh -huh. you know, essentially turned that into their shtick um, yeah. for quite some time. And it's like numerically, uh -huh. it's a very, very tiny slice, even of the Christian uh -huh. right. But like, it definitely has outsized influence in in that sense. And yes. So some churches that are kind of associated with it would be like IHOP, International House of Prayer, um, that comes Bethel. out of like the Kansas. That comes out of like the Kansas City um, Vineyard Church. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, Mike Bickle okay. and you know some of those other folks. Yeah, but is it kind of is it part of this now? <sighs> it, 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 the, there's a there's a complicated like prehistory of the uh -huh. New Apostolic Reformation that is somewhat complicated uh -huh. by the fact that a lot of these things, a, a lot of the tributaries that fed into it were uh -huh. these sort of like unaffiliated non-denominational churches or churches uh -huh. that started associated with a particular denomination like the Vineyard Church, but then sort of went off on their own when <coughs> right. they had like governance or doctrinal disagreements with the broader um, uh -huh. you know, like denomination. And then sort of became just a part of this loose network. Yeah. Um, and that's where like, you know, there is no denomination called the New Apostolic Reformation. Right, right, right. It's just a kind of movement. Um, right. But it, it's got heavy representation in those kinds of like um, charismatic megachurch kinds, mm -hmm. of, um, kinds of clusters. And that's what brings us to this story. Yeah. So Bethel is one of these church mega churches. It's located out in California. Um, uh, is it Redding? Bethel, California? What? Or uh, is it, uh, where in California is it? I think it's Redding or. I'm not even sure. Okay. okay. Yeah. We're not really talking about Bethel today, but. Um, okay. <laughs> but uh, it is one of these uh, mega churches that is associated with the New Apostolic Reformation. And um, it's really well known for the music that the people who work uh, in their praise and worship on their teams and everything have put out. It's. Um, I know that it has. Like it, it's it, they're they're producing a lot of like contemporary songs that are being used like not just in charismatic churches but in in any kind of you know church that has like a contemporary service they 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 have a lot of reach with their their music program, um, <clears throat> and so they're they're kind of like on par with Hillsong for for that for for like mass producing like con you know contemporary hymns um and, and to just to give a brief like glimpse at the level of getting on board with contemporary christian like contemporary music like a lot of churches are uh -huh. you know um so i found a fascinating statistic in a christianity today article uh -huh. on 
music. Uh, it's one out of every three new guitars over the past, I think, five years was purchased by people who play in praise and worship bands. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which means Guitar Center is making bank on yeah. this movement. But. Yeah, and um, and uh, Bethel has makes a lot of money from their music, but doesn't actually. It's my understanding they don't actually pay any of their music ministers. Um, they are all they are or like the rights to the music goes to the church or the, the organization. Yeah, yeah, and and I, they're not paid a staff; they're volunteers. Um, and and so so that's that. Um, and so the. The way that people are like affiliated with Bethel as musicians is also kind of transient and weird. And like, you can't go and like find whether they're on like the website usually. Um, so they're not staff, they're more like traveling troubadours. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and they're, yeah. So one of the, the people who kind of came out of this, his name is Sean Foyt. Um, he is a, he writes these, he writes worship songs. Um, and he's also for the the folks who are listening, who aren't quite sure what worship songs are and are thinking like, is this organ music or like, like how would you characterize like modern quote worship music? Like, well, I would say there's two like kind of types of contemporary music and, uh, Christian music. And one is like singer songwriter based. And, um, it's about the artist, like trying to live a godly life or whatever. And you would, you think of like Amy Grant being kind of like that. Um, Jennifer Knapp when she was, um, which, you know, doing Christian music and um, but then you also have the stuff that people sing in churches um, and that is what we would call contemporary praise and worship music it's like um, st- it's this kind of this got big in the 70s and it's just kind of continued and um, evolved and, and it's uh, like it's music that's essentially the audience of the music is ostensibly God Right, you're sort of they're sort of singing to God, um, not about lit like God, but like directly to God. Um, so Foyt is a he's a worship music leader who comes out of out of Bethel and was has been associated with their uh, school. It's like a unaccredited school of supernatural ministry which is this weird yes ah, you know a little bit about this but it's I, yeah I, I'm, I'm a couple of degrees from from folks who've, <laughs> who've attended and um uh, and it's just this it's my understanding that you don't uh, you kind of come already having whatever skill you're gonna have and then and you go and there's like a lot of like laying on of hands and like, uh, like a lot of the syllabus is lightweight theology and quote ministry training uh-huh. um, with the assumption that you're going to be going out and like, you know, sharing the gospel with the world via supernatural preaching. And, Which you know, is like, like care, use it, care, and what they mean by that is preaching that makes use of like the charismatic spiritual gifts like prophecy and uh, right. And, and so one of they, they've been like in the news cause they've done a, some weird things. Like they, they'll go and they, they'll lay on the graves of, um, of like deceased, 
uh, Pentecostal leaders to like absorb their energy. And Which they've... is not actually found in scripture to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> oh my gosh, it is. What? Son of a. I forgot about there. There's one old. There's one story in the Old Testament about one of the prophets laying down on the grave of one of the previous prophets and like hmm. being close to his bones. That's where they got it. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. Not even okay. Know that. No. Okay. And I was about to say that's not scriptural, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I know where they picked that one up. I don't. Okay. But, but that's exactly. <laughs> that's a perfect example of the kind of stuff that's an integrated part of their quote curriculum. It's yeah. You know, Mm-hmm. finding oh here's a prophet in the old testament who did a thing we're gonna do that yeah that's absorbing mm-hmm. power from prophet's bones 102 yeah so they've also tried to raise people from the dead um controversially <laughs> so because mm-hmm. um there was actually a a case in the news a number of years ago where three students sort of snuck snuck off and were hanging out in the mountains drinking and one of them fell um they thought to his death right um and instead of contacting the authorities or calling 911 they drove home in a panic mm-hmm. because they didn't want they didn't want anyone to find out they'd been out drinking and prayed for him to be resurrected right and he he wasn't <laughs> he, he was not in fact he was seriously injured and spent like a day waiting for help rather than um being you know died and resurrected and he i believe he ended up being paralyzed there was a lawsuit but like that's an example of like the kind of environment this is where it seems Mm -hmm. like a rational choice to go home and pray that your fellow student be resurrected rather than calling 911 right right um yeah so um sean foyt has kind of has been an instructor there he's worked with them and he's been one of the volunteer music ministers he's also a right-wing activist um so um yeah he's a he's a he's been very uh active during the covid pandemic for for the entire time he started out uh hosting these let us worship rallies to protest um church closures in california for the pandemic uh and they were open air usually rallies where they would he would perform his music and um, and no one wore masks. Right. And it was kind of anti It was like also an anti-masking protest. And he would claim that no one ever got sick at the, uh, at the, at the rallies, which isn't actually true. Um, but uh, yeah. And he does things like organize mass, like gatherings at like homeless encampments, uh, putting, ho- uh, excuse me, putting uh, houseless, uh, Californians at risk. And as a result, he's often opposed by like anti-racist and anti-fascist organizers who try to block his events. Um, they have sometimes described him as a cult leader. Um, and he does have the, his own like nonprofit 24 hour prayer type room ministry. Uh, Which is basically a room where people can go and pray for yeah, stuff. Which yeah. is a thing inside of like like charismatic and Pente- certain charismatic and Pentecostal movements, um, the the idea of like explicit directed prayer where you're sort of uh-huh. like petitioning God to like 
take care of certain problems or protect certain people or whatever. It's uh-huh. called inter- intercessory prayer, like you're interceding on behalf of someone for towards, for God. And uh-huh. there are in these circles, like certain, like, there's this theme that pops up occasionally of like having 24 seven prayer going on and right. ministries whose purpose is keeping like the torch lit 24 seven in that sense. Right. So um, he's collaborated in these concerts with a, a, another Bethel affiliated artist named Kim Walker Smith. Uh, for some reason, she seems to alight a lot of the criticism that he gets about it. Um, because she's um, less openly political, but I mean, it's pretty political to take part in an anti-masking, let us worship protest as if like the, you know, it's it's sort of framed like the Christian church is under attack in America. We, you know, so. um, And like last year in June, like he was also going around and like doing worship rallies at like the site of like, George, where George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. Right. And he, like, he claimed that like uh-huh. we need to go from riots to revival. And then he would do a worship, you know, song right. and stuff like that. So like it, at the very least, he's like he's chasing around highly politicized, very controversial stuff. And I think the most generous interpretation is he's doing the you know, like the culture jamming version of Hey kids, you know who really upset religious leaders? Jesus did, you know, right. kind yeah. of thing. But yeah, but it it uh-huh. he, he then followed that up by like, you know, doing this big thing where they went and prayed and laid hands on Donald Trump in the, you know, during his first um, you know, during his first uh yeah. um, impeachment and stuff like uh-huh. that. So there's always been an and a political connection and you'll, you'll find people like, you know, Sean and, and in the scene who will often say like, Oh, you know, we're not taking a side here. We're just praying for the president because he's an important man, but you didn't see the same thing. Oh, but he, like, he, oh, he will admit to taking a side, Sean. <laughs> uh, he, he ran for Congress as a Republican in 2020. Oh, uh, oh lost, well there. Okay. Um, he lost the, the March 3rd primary, uh, with uh only like i think 13 percent of republican votes um and uh small comfort (laughs) yeah so around the time he was doing the the uh he was organizing right right around where the the george floyd protest had started um uh yeah that's kind of where he started the let us worship protests and um he said about Black Lives Matter, quote, we can't let our God-given empathy be sidetracked by a dark movement with hidden agendas. Um, oh, once again, yeah. with the dangers of empathy. Right. In a, face- it's true. In a Facebook post about it, he wrote, they are very pro-choice. I am very anti-abortion. They believe in radical gender theory and the complete denuclearization of the family. I believe wait, that. Wait. <laughs> you, hold on. Black, okay. He's you talking know what? about Black Lives gonna, Matter. 
<laughs> I, I'm just going to let denuclearization of the family go because that implies a heavily nuclear armed family unit <laughs> as a key building block of society. And I'm just going to let that one go. But. Yeah. Uh, he said, I believe the family is the most important foundation of our society and that God specifically made us in his image, male and female. Uh, it was like this back and forth he had with commenters on the blog. He called Black Lives Matter a hateful uh, anti-police group with crazy ideas. Um, so he's already like he's he's kind of far right already. Um, and um, so on on August thirteenth, he 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 held a rally in Portland. Uh, like an anti-masking, anti-vaccine, sort of anti-like COVID, sort of COVID paranoia rally. Um, and he, his story was that they asked people to volunteer for S security and that a bunch of proud boys just happened to volunteer that they didn't ask them specifically but when they were putting this together, this is kind of how they how they they called for for security. So, a guy named Chris Overstreet, who is a Bethel outreach pastor, and he he, he said, "quote uh, Antifa is trying to put fear in the church across the Northwest. It is time for the church to be able to say we are not backing down. We are not hiding in fear. We're not going to play it safe. We're going to be bold with our faith." So, he, <laughs> so if they're coming out against Antifa, I mean, you're going to attract some proud boy so, types. Um, so basically, in Portland, one of the cities where this this underlying conflict between far right, like right, like violent far right groups and anti-fascist protesters protesters has been right. brewing for a long time uh -huh. they're in portland and they're just announcing hey if only <laughs> somebody would come and help us stand up yeah, against yes, antifa, antifa. Mm -hmm. so yeah so he assembled uh what they called a christian security team which they allegedly sought out people who had experience providing security for churches um they did not explicitly invite the Proud Boys, but it, like they did say they were going to take a stand against Antifa. Um, and when the Proud Boys showed up, they didn't do anything to stop them. And Sean Foyt uh, posed with this, in this very um, like dramatic photo with several of them and that with, with all of their weapons out. Um, uh, uh, mm -hmm. okay. And that kind of went viral on Twitter. I um, I'm shocked, shocked to hear there are proud boys in this establishment. Yeah. So in, in, um, in, you know, getting this event going, Foyt came out and called the, the Antifa demonic. Um, so which, which is just sort of standard rhetoric, rhetoric for any bad guy you're talking to, you know, talking about in, in the circle, you know, I, I feel like we, we should do like a, a vocabulary corner at some point. Uh -huh. And like one of them is, what does it mean when something gets called a satanic or <laughs> demonic? Like oh this is sort of, it, it roughly occupies a space like 
when a far <sighs> political right personality refers to something as Marxist. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's, yeah, that's true. Marxist, but spiritual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I that's, think that's, that's right. That's sort of what the phrase implies. That's true. Um, yeah, so he posed happily with them, with their weapons, and it just suggested a degree of cross-pollination with the neo-fascist organizing in the United States. Um, Foyt's a guy who, um, who grew up in this. He, he's... He He went to Oral Roberts University, right? Yeah, he was raised in a, in a family that worked for Youth with a Mission, which is called YWAM, which is this charismatic, um... Like it's kind of it's very active, like in in um, like in it, developing it, in, in the global south. It's basically like churches. global evangelism and like yeah. you know being a missionary in foreign lands, and uh-huh. it heavily targets um, like young teens. Yes, like, uh-huh. you know. So I'm trying to figure out what to do. You know, I'm on summer break. YWAM is like, hey, are you on fire for God? You can go on a mission to Africa. Uh-huh. You know, help. You know, that, that's what YWAM does. Uh-huh. Um, and his uh, father, after working for YWAM, became a pastor of missions at New Life Christian Fellowship in Virginia Beach. Um, he has done. That's the home of the Christian Broadcasting Network, like the. Uh, yeah, and it's also, yeah, and it's the you know it's also where um, well, well it's it's close to Liberty. Um, oh but, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, my dad's family's from there. Um, and um, so yeah, that's that's where he grew up, and uh, he's had some experience. I don't know. I feel I think that he kind of exaggerates this overseas missions work that he's done. And he talks about being, you know, part of the persecuted church and helping like smuggle Bible (sighs) and stuff like that. Like, um, so, so. Uh, one thing that Kim Walker Smith said was like, oh, if, if he, you know, if he says that he's been through so much, if he says that the church is being persecuted in the United States, then he would know. Um, so, <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, are you like familiar with like the iconic tropiness of like smuggling Bibles? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it, like, yeah. Like there's, there's, oh man, like I, there's a, there's a book called God's Smuggler that like (laughs) was just this sort of like iconic, you know, everybody hit it. Every church library had a copy of God's Smuggler when I grew up. And it was, it was basically about some guy, a a guy who in like, he, he would take like VW bug trunks full of like pocket Bibles uh-huh. into the Soviet Union and just like drive them past, you know, drive them through borders and stuff like that and distribute them to like Christians who uh-huh. want to read the Bible in the Soviet Union. And there's all kinds of stories about how close he came to death and how, you know, the guards would open the trunk to inspect the Bible, you know, to inspect for contraband and they would look at the Bibles and he would pray, God, please blind their eyes. And they would say nothing and send him along. Uh-huh. And it's sort of this like, this frisian, this idea of like being 
in, in, in tremendous danger, but doing it instead of windsurfing, you're mm-hmm. doing it for God. And, right, know, right, right, right. Yeah, uh, there's apparently so many Bibles in China now that <laughs> they, as a result of these Westerners doing this. Just um, load-bearing Bibles in every building. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, um, I, I think he's been to, uh, yeah, I don't know, various countries. And to be clear, I I don't want to minimize the fact that there are countries in other parts of the world Uh where Christians are legitimately a, 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 a persecuted religious group. That is entirely possible. Not like the the way they talk about it, really. But, but right, and that's the thing. It's like the the what what Foyt is talking about is this weird tendency to like lay claim to this sense of like a global like brotherhood and sisterhood of all Christians, mm-hmm. you know, uniting everyone. That means that. Sean Foyt can lay claim to the persecuted, you know, uh-huh. threat of death that someone who's living in a country where the Bible is banned, you know, uh-huh. that's that's his too as a fellow Christian. Uh-huh. Despite the fact that he's living in a nation where literally being called a non-Christian and having people believe that claim is pretty much damning for someone in the United States running for national office. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's it, it, regardless of whatever is going on globally uh-huh. in other countries, that is not what's happening in the United <laughs> States and most Western countries. It's yeah. just, it's just Definitely not. not. No. Um, it's something that is laid claim to. A yeah. Lot. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so that I, I just think, yeah, so um, he is one example of, you know, organizing with fascist movements in the United States. And I, you know, I don't, huh, I guess it was sort of inevitable that it would come to this. Um, but I don't think that's usually been the, the way that, like, I like it, it. This is new. This is kind of a new development, I would say. Well, yeah, it's it's been there's been a lot of issue crossover, and like yeah. in the circles that I'm sort of I still keep an eye on via like you know family and friend connections and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Like you know the Black Lives Matter movement and stuff like that got tons and tons of pushback, right. and as like Antifa became the boogeyman in the right wing imagination. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. Um, you know the the same groups inside of the Christian right uh-huh. seized on that, and despite the fact that you know you wouldn't necessarily think even conceptually, like there's nothing about even the boogeyman version of Antifa that is explicitly about Christianity pro or con. No, <laughs> it became sort of wrapped up in the generic threat like concept i mean like, yeah i guess because trump talked about it they exactly yeah. you know you got you know trump talked about it and it became wrapped up with all of the other dark nefarious forces trying to persecute christians and keep them you mm-hmm. know, and, and you know and defeat god in some right. unspecified fashion yeah so you know now you've got now you've got this 
Christian worship musician talking about how Antifa is trying to put fear into Christians. Right. I don't know how, like, but <laughs> I mean, they have, and, well, anti, anti-fascists have, have shut down some of his rallies because they felt that he was going into vulnerable areas. Um, for example, like, like I said, homeless encampments and felt like they needed to protect parts of of cities from just like a thousands of anti-maskers. Right. Right. And, um, and that ties in with the fact that like a large part of the anti-fascist movement is heavily populated by like anarchists who right. are big on the idea of like, local individuals in their communities are responsible for, for defending their communities yeah, yeah. from threats. Like mm-hmm. say someone coming in and holding a giant unmasked ra- you know, rally during COVID. Exactly. Season. So that, but so his answer to that was, well, that's because they did it because they're demonic. Um, and yeah, and they, oppo- uh, they oppose this revival that I'm, I'm spearheading. Yeah, um, I- I mean, it's it's a common refrain, so you know. Yeah, so I think he will continue to try to be involved in politics. Um, probably run for office again. He really has uh, sort of made a name for himself because of these, you know, anti-masker rallies um, all over the place. And I think something that's going to be interesting to watch over time as well, given how. <sighs> whether it's a uh-huh. deliberate like attempt to bridge movements or whether he's just kind of dumb and credulous. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know enough about him to right. say, Yeah. Um, but like the fact that proud boys are starting to show up and there's more direct connections with far, like militant far right groups, not just, politically Mm -hmm. extreme groups is interesting because um you know there's a number of people uh, i think uh, there's a like a former professor and now a researcher uh, who goes by miss entropy on twitter but Mm -hmm. uh, she's done a lot of threads on like how the christian identity movement Mm -hmm. which is not in fact a theological group but is just a white supremacist group that came up with a brand of like white supremacist like neo-nazi ideology that like Mm -hmm. integrated jesus yeah exactly and they call themselves the christian you know christian identity Uh and she she's done a lot of research on how the christian identity movement explicitly targets these kinds of groups right as like a recruiting ground for white for for white supremacist extremism based on that sort of like fuzzy drifting overlap quality that they see right and that's been going on since the 80s with when militant anti-abortion groups uh were were working with like the army of god which is a which is a christian identity sort of paramilitary group um yeah, and, so. and she's very scrupulous about being clear that like Christian identity and religious fundamentalism uh-huh. are very different things. Sure, but uh-huh. there are these critical overlap points yep. that the Christian identity movement has for for decades explicitly sought to exploit. And I exactly. think it, it's going to be worth keeping an eye on these kinds of overlaps yeah. for, for that kind of more explicit and more deliberate exploitation. Yeah, definitely. I think that it will continue and uh, expand. So, 
Mm-hmm. So, it is it time for me to for me to transition yeah. to? Uh, to the, <laughs> I think so, so. I'm gonna talk for a little bit about romance novels. Um, if 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 you weren't expecting that, then <laughs> the club. Uh, but yeah, you you're gonna have to work hard to convince <laughs> me that I should care about this. Well, okay, so. I'm going to be honest. I'm not extremely familiar with yeah. the romance novel genre, but me either. From from consulting with friends who are more involved in in that uh-huh. scene, you know, who are writers and, yeah. and stuff and editors, I have come. To, I've I I believe I don't think I'm off base yeah. in saying that it is uncommon for a romance novel to have. Um, one of the best known acts of genocide by the U.S. military, uh-huh. as it's called, open. Right. No, that's. <laughs> it's not the usual way to launch a romance novel. I um, guess, but I feel like I that they're like, um, there there is this genre of like prairie romance and and christian like i do i I do think that that's why it's on this yeah that kind of like um valorizes colonialism and and stuff like that that, um and here we go yeah yes yeah so so this year um the romance writers of america um not a religious organization it's essentially you know it was it it's the national association of you know industry you know industry people and writers editors etc involved uh-huh. in the romance novel industry yeah. um in they in their awards in the inspirational category this year the winner was a book at love's command um, so wait, wait. We should say the inspirational category is generally Christian. It's well, not that, just that's the con- that that's the interesting part. That's yeah. That's where things get contentious. the The winner this year was a novel called At Love's Command, written by Karen Whitemeyer, um, author of a giant pile of Christian romance novels, um, and. <sighs> The At Love's Command cold opens with the Wounded Knee Massacre, mm-hmm. um, like the the eighteen you know ninety massacre of hundreds oh, of uh, Lakota Native Americans by the U.S. military. Right, right, right. Um, which again, not a common way to cold open a romance novel, um, but. There was a and the 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 hero of this novel, the love interest, yeah. like the the heartthrob, you know, sweaty shirtless guy that you know is the focus of the narrative, you know, energy of the novel. Yeah, is a U.S. soldier present right at the massacre? Sure, that's how it opens. Yeah, and is it like and, he's a hero and like it's well. Well, we'll we'll get to that in okay. a second. But okay. there was a huge controversy when it won, okay. um, and the award was later rescinded <laughs> because of the controversy. Was it okay? Yes, like they they pulled it, and um, you know it was significant enough that like the the 
angry dis- the angry arguments about it broke out of the romance mm-hmm. novel world and hit like the onlines and it even got some mainstream media coverage like NPR and you know stuff like that did stories about it and so yeah. <sighs> I so feel if, if, like this kind of thing is like kind of in the same genre as like the Little House on the Prairie books right the yeah. same kind of writing Just a about- lot sexier um <laughs> okay it, yeah so so like if somebody's unfamiliar with the genre like and, and is particularly like if you're listening and scratching your head and saying christian romance novels huh how does that work um well boy howdy are you in for a treat um so like since the rise of like the harlequin romance novels as like a dominated as, as like a real industry force in the publishing world uh-huh. um like the broader romance genre has grown a lot. And um, as you might expect, Christian publishers have jumped on the bandwagon. And despite like the romance genre's reputation as like um, text-based porn for women with Fabio on the cover, Uh there are actually a fair number of cultural overlaps Uh um, in particular in historical romance novels which is like you know love in the old west or something like that that there's a huge overlap with um like christian publishing's uh-huh. long time in long time emphasis on historical fiction in particular right. the whole subgenre of like prairie adventures um you know people like Jeanette oak um in the christian yeah. publishing world have been like prolifically writing like stories about um, you know, female protagonists in particular in like, you know, making making do in, you know, the the harsh world of the old West and the prairie and stuff like that. And as you said, uh, yeah. a lot of these stories are like Little House on the Prairie style, like glorification or at the very least whitewashing of um you know colonialism and the the way that the US expanded and essentially right. yoinked Native American land for until they had basically squeezed the Native American population of the United Uh States onto a tiny number of reservations and said, okay, well, now we've got the land. So, you know, we'll just call it a day. Yeah, and there's a little bit of this kind of attitude in the Mandy books, which were for girls. Oh, like Lord, the, all 107 of them? Oh, are there them? I, I read one, like, in fourth grade. It was terrible. Um, so it, but, yeah, um, the Mandy books are a series of like very you know they're young YA novels yeah. of, that have this sort of historical adventure vibe. And even then, I a, was like eight or nine. I just remember being yeah. like, "This is horribly written. I can't even." <laughs> like the main can't. character Mandy, like there's a hundred there's a hundred plus novels in the series, and she's basically like the Forrest Gump of you know the 1800s, as far as I can tell, because she meets literally every historical figure. And, <laughs> yeah, sorry, so I, I've read a lot of Christian fiction. You have, you, you've read a lot more than I have. I've always hated it. You know, um, the first twenty or thirty <laughs> books were a little more solid, but it it really got formulaic after that. But. <laughs> Um, um yeah but, but like this this idea of like classic adventures in the old west or in on the prairie or whatnot um is like deeply ingrained in christian publishing and as a consequence in like the the narrative <laughs> imagination 
of a lot of evangelical yeah, like, and fundamentalist Christians who were raised on these books as entertainment. Are you familiar with Christie? That's one of the. That's part of this yep. kind of genre. Peter, yep. I forget his name, but yeah, Ugh, I did read that back in the day. It was okay. <laughs> and like Hilda, Hilda Stahl was another writer who wrote like a bunch of different stories. Hers were generally targeted at like an older audience than like the Mandy books, like maybe, right. you know, you know, YA, young teen, you know, like her, her heroines and heroes were usually like, you know, maybe in there, you know, somewhere in the 12 to 14 zone right? and facing challenges and dangers, you know, and life on the prairie and stuff like that. And every once in a while, you know, they might know an Indian. Right. And I remember people thinking Christy was bad because she kissed more than one man. Before yeah. she was married, with, without being married. Well, and that's what brings <laughs> us back to this romance novel overlap, you know, despite yeah. like the, like there is some tension there. Like, um, so a friend of a friend of mine, uh, Sarah Brady is an editor and speaker uh -huh. and did a talk at like the 2018 um, Society for Editing conference right. about editing novel editing christian romance novels and like gave uh -huh. like the list of like taboo terms uh -huh. that like you know publishers have you know laid down you cannot use the word arousal or bastard or bra or butt or damn this or is in the dang in the yeah. Christian books or all? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that was um, a particular Christian romance novel oh, publisher. Oh, God. Okay. That, you know, had laid down a list of like words like holy cow or holy when used in any non-religious context. <laughs> One of the and, words is devil that you're not allowed to use, huh? Yes. Uh, devil, um, swear, swore undergarments of any kind or the word whore <laughs> which feels that. like a real escalation yeah it but, does um <laughs> but you know so like there's you know there, there is absolutely tension in like the romance genre when you've got you know this sort of you know hot-blooded romance and love and sex and you know fabio I don't know. Fabio hasn't been on the cover of a romance novel for what, like, longer than a lot of people have been alive. Uh, yeah. So, like, I'm dating myself there. But like, <laughs> the, you know, there, there's a particular, um, there's a particular reputation that romance novels have that seems very contradictory to the idea of Christian romance novels. Yeah. But there's still this strong overlap in like the um, the narrative of. Um, of you know historical historical drama oh, yeah. mm -hmm. and the idea of like an independent woman being swept off her feet by a strong but respectful guy like even yeah. without like the hot steamy you know love and all of those tropes right like there's a deep compatibility with certain evangelical fundamentalist like ways uh -huh. of framing traditional gender roles and complementarianism yeah that it it can slot in there very easily. Um, yeah. And Bethany House Publishing, or sorry, Bethany Publishing um, was sort of the epicenter of like the 1990s Christian prairie romance genre. Like they yeah. were, they published all of the Mid Oaks books. Aren't and they also publishers of the Amish ones? The, the I, I'm not sure. I don't, I, like Amish romance novels is a whole sub-sub-genre that I haven't yeah, had a chance to dive into. Me either. Um, I haven't wanted to either, but 
I have seen listening. the covers because I'm on if, if this is not the twist you expected the podcast to take. <laughs> we'll, we'll get through this together, but it's we're going to an interesting place. The thing is, is Bethany Publishing, um, a recurring issue that te- that that comes through is so they published another controversial award nominee for the romance writers association uh-huh. 15, like five years ago okay um the book uh let me double check what the title was um in, in 2015 the book um for such a time uh-huh. was a romance novel that bethany published and it was nominated for the Romance Writers Association Award, and it got tons of controversy. It was hugely controversial because it was, um, the author said it was a riff on the Old Testament book of Esther. Um, well, you know, I'll, I'll quote from The Guardian. There's an article about about this. Um, it, it, the author says that it was a riff on the Old Testament book of Esther in which the Jewish girl uh, Hadassah, also known as Esther, marries the Persian king mm-hmm. and saves her people from genocide. Now, in this novel, um, it's set in World War II and Hadassah hides behind the identity of um, a, a German woman working as a secretary for mm-hmm. an SS commandant. And she finds herself, quote, battling a growing attraction for the man she knows she de- should despise as the uh-huh. enemy as she tries to save the prince camp's prisoners. And eventually she converts to Christianity. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, there's a whole stack of problematic issues. I, with- yeah, I remember hearing about this on Twitter. And, yeah. It's like, you know, I think it, that that was probably even higher profile because you wrote a romance novel about a Jewish woman falling in love uh-huh. with an SS commandant during world war two <laughs> feels solidly like everybody got why that was right. Controversial. Uh-huh. And even if you can frame it as attempting to recontextualize a story from the old Testament in modern times, it's a hot button. But right. when you step back and look at it in the context of this pattern with Christian, like Bethany House Publishing in particular, uh-huh. publishing these Christian romance novels and them getting put up for these awards, uh-huh. like one of the themes that keeps coming through in a lot of these highly controversial, problematic novels uh-huh. is their willingness to take really, really horrifying actual historic events and use them to like establish the bad guyness or the hauntedness or the right. troubledness of the male love interest, but then redeem them. Uh-huh. And that I think that ties in with the theme that we've talked about before of like the well like you know ethical collapse uh-huh. you know when there's so much of an emphasis on like sin is sin uh-huh. everything you know sure. everyone has sinned all sin no sins are small sins it's all sin in god's eyes yeah that this idea of amping up the stakes in a narrative by like you know having your character be an ss commandant instead yeah. of just general bad person or something like that uh-huh. and then working them through a redemption arc is it, it it dovetails with that idea that well you know it's 
all all of us have done bad things. Right. Exactly. And it, it's. <laughs> I'm yeah. not going to go into a thorough deconstruction of like all of the issues with that, but it's something that it's interesting that it keeps happening yeah. in, in like in this genre. And it's a, it's another interesting facet of it is that this inspirational category for the romance writers of America used to be religious fiction, like okay. the religious category used to be what things were nominated into. Uh And in part due to the controversy about for such a time, the Jewish woman falls in love with an SS Commandant novel. um, It was renamed to the inspirational category, which was an attempt to make it broader. Um, That was one of many things that occurred. Um, See, I always assumed this was a category that would hit. I mean, that this is what these books were called in the library when I was growing up in the 70s, not in the 70s, in the 80s and and early 90s. That was the inspirational section. And Um, and what's interesting is that it's been part of a sort of, I'll I'll say, tension inside of the Romance Writers Association of what is the role of that category uh-huh. like should you know would a, would a jewish writer who writes inspirational romance novels if they submit their fiction there sure but it doesn't hit the the right notes of like christian you know evangelical uh-huh. theology and redemption arcs doesn't it have just as much of a place there and uh-huh. that was touched on when one of the leadership of the romance writers of america made a public statement that you know you know the the importance of redemption is critic is you know inherent in the inspirational category and a lot of people said uh not necessarily while the redemption arc uh-huh. may be a big part of evangelical christianity there's lots of religious faiths and inspirational narratives that aren't about that yeah sure that was always the christian book section growing you know growing but yeah i mean yeah that's true but and yeah yeah i having having waded through the whole text of um of of (sighs) the book at love's command yeah I, i will say the really bizarre thing for me is that uh-huh. there is like a 12 page account of the wounded knee massacre. Really? I and, I thought it would be like a backdrop type of thing. Oh yeah. That's what I assumed as well. Yeah. That, you know, it would be like a thing referred to often as like, you know, the dark past. The dark, of the yeah. I'd be haunted but, and but stuff. Like, yeah. The book cold opens with like a literal massacre. Oh, and okay. The, the it's very strange because it actually does touch on specific uh-huh. like historical facts about the massacre like uh-huh. when the US army opened with you know like used specific guns yeah. in the, over the course of the battle and you know when it moved from one specific geographical location to another uh-huh. like those are very specific parts of the narrative that's told um Mm-hmm. But it also then once this is all over, um, it's never mentioned again. Like what? the actual, like the fact that this occurred is just sort of like, well, that's the reason he left the army. So it's it it it's not as really a redemption. He was just 
always a no. good a good man. Yeah. So yeah, there isn't even a redemption arc. He oh. was just a good guy who okay. happened to be there for a massacre. Oh, I can't believe you read this whole thing. Oh my god! So, uh, so um, like he gets <laughs> knocked out during the course of this like firefight, uh-huh. which historically was also a one-sided firefight. Like, uh-huh. like historically, like the yeah, the, the U.S. Army was there to disarm a, a, a Lakota encampment, right? And, like, and they opened fire when there was. By all accounts, historically, there a, a deaf member of the encampment. Um, they tried to take his rifle. He didn't understand their instructions. The rifle uh-huh. went off, and the whole U.S. The, like the U.S. Army just opened fire and uh-huh. killed three hundred people. There, right. you know, the they attempted to fight back, but most of them had already been disarmed. Uh-huh. So like the U.S. military suffered, I think. 25 casualties and then went on to like award like 30 medals of honor to mm. you know the soldiers in there right um, which you know and like but even at the time like there were members of the military that like said this was a shit show okay like, this was terrible so it, it's not as if like there was some sort of general public outcry about how this was a terrible thing but even inside of the military uh-huh. there were voices saying like wow this was a horrible mistake sure yeah um but like the the picture of the protagonist of this novel uh-huh. is that like he's this thoughtful troubled you know good guy who is in a rough world and you yeah. know just you know it's, it's things just happen and he you know sometimes people die and it's terrible okay and i think the closing the closing line of the of the prologue um bile burned at the back of matt's throat he joined the cavalry to protect settlers people like his family his task had been to bring justice and order to the frontier but this wasn't justice god forgive us god forgive us he murmured they'd just participated in a massacre oh my god now that's the passive voice doing some real heavy lifting there yeah um just there was a massacre it just and happened. we found ourselves unwilling participants. Oh, wow. Um, but All the of us ju- were unwilling participants, yeah. But then yeah. the book just moves on. Huh. It never reassesses that. Wow. Like, from that point on, he's. it's like, fast forward, you know, four years. Uh-huh. Matt's now the head of a small group of, like, you know, good-hearted, you know, lawmen for hire who go around you know like breaking up rustling gangs and stuff like that and there's like this you know him there's Uh a sequence of him like you know taking down a bunch of cattle rustlers but he only shoots their hats Uh he doesn't actually shoot to kill you know he's it oh god okay and and one of his one of his crew is shot in the ensuing you know scuffle he takes you know he takes him to the town the doctor at the closest town uh-huh. and the doctor unexpectedly turns out uh-huh. to be a a pretty woman which who would expect that sort of twist in the old west yeah um, okay you, you can you can you can figure out yeah, the rest yeah. you know, it's um but like the the like the there is no redemption arc. 
right. the theological, like the, the religious content of it basically just consists of them being worried about danger. And when something bad is going to happen, them like praying, God, Lord, please protect, you know, my brother, mm-hmm. you know, please keep Matt safe, you know, from all those bullets, you oh, know, that man. kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it's very like, it, it's very fluffy in terms of like the religious content mm-hmm. and there isn't a need for a religious or there isn't a need for a redemption arc yeah. because the book attempts to insist that he never did anything wrong in the first place because he was one of the good guys who was just so horrified by how this all went so wrong. And I like, mean, I haven't read many of these books, but I think that is kind of standard for the way they go. I mean, uh, yeah, like, I mean, I'm sh- with the, she grappling yeah. with the darkness of the human heart is yeah. not what the genre is known for. No. Um, but like nobody made you choose <laughs> to set it there. The yeah, as just to use horrible. use it to show that he's really a good guy. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, uh, and so yeah, and and I think like the the takeaway from it, other than it being like deep cut like genre drama, right type stuff. Mm-hmm. I think the the interesting thing for me is that. It's a real. It's a. It's a concrete example of how dissonant uh-huh. and almost like incomprehensible certain cultural assumptions can be yeah. across the divide of that, like of that evangelical fundamentalist culture uh-huh. and a broader secular culture that doesn't see those kinds of things as like uh-huh. backdrops, sure. but as significant things m- that must be grappled with on their own, right? Like as as events and as part of an ongoing conflict that is in our culture and sure. yeah and it's just a backdrop in this. yeah it's not it doesn't even register as it being important enough to <laughs> yeah to, to have to be redeemed from um yeah it, it, exactly it's like uh-huh. there's not even why would there be a redemption arc matt's a good guy right um, yeah and you know it, it kind of reminded me for like old school internet sci-fi geeks uh-huh. um what an article that created a huge controversy back in the day when uh-huh. it came out was um um john kessel's creating the innocent killer which uh-huh. uh and and uh, someone named elaine redford wrote uh, sympathy for the superman just two articles that came out very close to each other but uh-huh. basically they were about um orson scott card's ender's game right. and how narratively speaking tons of the energy in the book Ender's Game mm-hmm. is all steered towards building a character who can innocently commit genocide. Like, because hmm. that's ultimately what the book Ender's Game concludes with. You know, this kid who's been trained for war and and goes off and essentially kills off an alien race that, you know, Earth is at war with. And uh. the, this idea is that all of the narrative energy of the book is structured around creating an invented scenario in which this character is present and an actor in right. what we would call genocide, but is innocent. Okay. So and very similar. It, yeah. And that theme, I think it, it feels weirdly present here uh-huh. because even though that actual massacre isn't as central to the narrative, it's like, all of the building blocks of characterization are deployed to 
make him an innocent person and yeah, a, yeah. a good person in the presence of this without ever dealing with any of the actual monstrous things that were that led to that right well um, they don't even see it as monstrous right yeah, right like no oh you know defending settlers it's like right well that uh, that's sort of how we got there like uh, and that's the, kind of how the little house and the prairie books go i think it, it's been yes. not since elementary school that i read it, but but yeah it's oh yeah defending the settlers of course the the really deep cut irony is that one of the flashpoints leading uh -huh. up to the Wounded Knee Massacre was that there was a religious movement that was making its way through various reservations and Native American groups at the time uh -huh. um, called the Ghost Dance Movement. Uh -huh. um, one of the ideas that was a part of it was that Jesus was coming back as a Sioux warrior and huh. was going to eject white settlers. Oh, okay, and I know that. U.S. officials were very concerned about the quote Messiah craze. Oh. Um, and like their attempts to crack down and arrest a number of chiefs of you know tribes in the area. Uh -huh. One, you know, um, they attempted to do that, and one of the chiefs, Sitting Bull, refused to comply right. and was killed by police at his home. Mm -hmm. And then things spiraled and the military was brought in. And that's when, yeah. that's how we got this. So like, there's right. such a profound and deep, not only is it tragic, it's like bizarrely ironic. Right. In, in like, and I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, I, I don't feel that I don't feel that At Love's Command really grappled with those nuances. <laughs> that, what a shock. <laughs> and like, and, I mean, it feels bizarre to say this, but like in the book's defense, like I don't think it attempted to redeem the Wounded Knee Massacre, uh -huh. but I don't think it really considered it necessary to. Right. It wasn't anything more than a bad thing that happened. Sure. Like being present for a particular battle in the Civil War uh -huh. or something like that. That, you know, just soured you on being in the army and, you know, you went off to live a different yeah. life. Yeah. And I think it's it's that I think that plus the dust up in the award related stuff for the Romance Writers of America, it's a part of that broader like Christian cultural dominance uh -huh. in which Christian media and Christian themes and Christian theological uh -huh. narratives are considered neutral and normative rather than explicitly Christian. Right. Uh -huh. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. that is my journey into Christian romance novels. <sighs> There's a sequel. What? To there, the book? He, he's, yeah, he's married now, and he's it, it, there, there's horses oh, to be ridden and, and wrongs to be righted. Um, <laughs> so there's gonna be I promise probably a baby coming. Oh, oh, absolutely. You know, and just Ugh. probably gets kidnapped or something. You know, it's you gotta you gotta up the stakes by but. a native person, probably. You know, right? I don't know. There weren't actually any Native Americans that appeared in the entire book after the massacre. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's it's amazing. Like, it, yeah. yeah. Um, pretty, pretty, pretty sanitized. Yeah. Um, but like for all of the sanitized stuff, weirdly direct about cold opening with the massacre. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, so 
on, on that note, I, I, I promise I will now wrap <laughs> um, our journey into Christian uh-huh. fiction. But I think in the future, it is going to be interesting because there are some specific like books that have been deeply influential in like the evangelical and fundamentalist like worldview, to use a Francis Schaeffer term. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I think this present darkness has been brought up a number of times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in addition to books like um, Left Behind, uh, Left Behind and stuff like that. And as, as kitschy as they can be, like they have a significant and profound influence on that. And like, yeah, inside of that culture, it's sort of like how now you'll you'll have people like making reference to like mm-hmm. being Ravenclaws, right? In or you know I'm a Hufflepuff in in you know like in like political discussions, yeah. Like using something like well I'm a Ravenclaw to explain like their philosophy on how to how to like how the Senate should you know pursue a particular legislation or something, yeah. And there's similar kinds of shaping effects that some of those popular works of Christian fiction have mm-hmm. inside of those cultures, like this present darkness in particular. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. You are really more into the books than I ever was. Did you, <laughs> were you not allowed to read other books? Like well, better books? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, were you just not allowed to read books? Like, that did you choose um, these books? <laughs> so, so a little my my background is basically like at about ten, um, mm-hmm. I started publishing a Christian zine, right? Um, like with you know, photocopied typewritten pages, mm-hmm. and, you know, selling it door to door and saying I right. was a magazine publisher. You know, I was that I was that right. precocious, and annoying. Yeah. Kid. Um, but about a year or so into that, I also I I was doing lots of book reviews and like I was a voracious reader and like. I was reading my parents out of house and home. Right. Um, and you, so you and, chose the Christian books. Well, what we discovered <laughs> was that you can write to book publishers and request review copies of books on a magazine's letterhead. You can do that uh, with other books too. <laughs> <laughs> like, Jeff, I need to go back in time and tell you, <laughs> you can do this with good books uh, as well. Yeah. Um, so I started writing to local Christian publishers. Okay. And I lived in Wheaton, Illinois, which was like the absolute eight like epicenter of Christian publishing at the time. This is when Wheaton was like the home of Wheaton College and the Billy Graham Museum mm-hmm. and a bunch of Bible and tract publishers. And right and it, this was a couple of years before a bunch of them migrated to Colorado Springs, Colorado in okay. like now and now like Colorado Springs is kind of that like you know evangelical publishing mecca yeah um but i for a number of years basically just had a non-stop fire hose of ya adult theology self-help you know novels whatever and ended up getting to know some of the publicists at those, you know, at those publishers. And as I got older, like I kept publishing this magazine until I was like 16 or mm. 17. Oh, wow. um, so like it kind of like evolved as I got older yeah. and like the stuff I was trying to write about. And that's also like, I got super political and, yeah, yeah. you know, stuff like that. Um, I, I got into some of the music, but I could not, 
yeah it just the books i couldn't do the books and, and like there i i will still like you know if i if i've got to pick a a, a niche hill to die on like mm-hmm. there are good books mm. written by you know authors in that sub industry really? and published by them yeah i mean there's genuinely good material like there's a book called home by another way by uh, an author uh, named nancy rue that was published years and years ago uh-huh. like, the main character is like a kid a, a kid named josh who's honestly kind of a dick but he's mm-hmm. training to be an olympic swimmer and he ends up getting you know like falling for a girl at his school who mm-hmm. um like comes from a very different kind of family and mm-hmm. he it's a very it's a different kind of narrative than you would expect to find from mm-hmm. cliche christian publishing yeah and it's one of those standout examples but like also i'm doing okay. deep cuts to stuff published in 1993 yeah you know <laughs> like it you know to, to find those real gems there is a lot of very very formulaic very weird very oh. niche evangelical and fundamentalist stuff to yeah. sort of wade through yeah but like but it is interesting because especially in the Christian fundamentalist world, those publishers were considered the safe place to get stuff for your kids. Okay. So like a lot of those stories became like that was the media environment mm-hmm. that many of those kids were raised in. Okay. So, okay. Okay. I'll huh. shut up now. So um, but were you allowed to read other books? Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. but like, yeah. Okay. But <sighs> But like, this was what you your have magazine to to, was about. So you had to. This was what my magazine was about, yeah. and also like Christian, the Christian bookstores were a very specific kind of destination. Yeah. So like, you could go to the Christian bookstore and get yeah. music, and novel, and mm-hmm. books, yeah, and sure. you know, Bible studies and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I think it, it wasn't until I was older, really, that like going to Barnes and Noble or something like that mm-hmm. took you know, occupied a similar place. Yeah. Okay. And YA as a mainstream genre, at least when I was that age, mm-hmm. hadn't blown up in the same way. No. It like hadn't. it wasn't the dominant force that it is in publishing now. Yeah. So it wasn't like there was a huge wealth of stuff. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you know, there was there was, but like it wasn't like, you know, just you know, you could, you know, walk down the street and, you know, be hit by the latest, you know, sci-fi dystopian YA novel or something like that. Yeah, I was never that into YA either. I went from, like, the Newbery Award books in elementary school to, like, adult books and literary, like, I don't know. Well, like, but also Uh, access to, like, just calling up publishers and asking for review copies of books mm -hmm. is how I made the transition to, like, oh, hey, I'll start, you know, reading the deep cut stuff Francis Schaeffer wrote uh-huh. in like the mid seventies. Okay. Um, so like that was also how I got exposed to more explicit, like what I now understand is reconstructionist yeah. Um, yeah. ideas too. Um, sure. Not necessarily because like my parents were explicitly saying, okay, here's what we need to teach you. Yeah. But I sort of had this like giant faucet full of Christian books that right. I could turn on. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Boy, is there some fascinating stuff in that faucet. (laughs) Yeah. So, 
So what 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 are you what's coming up on uh, some some of the upcoming episodes? Like what what this is this has been a, a sort of lighter episode where we touched on a couple of topics at you know at a let's say medium depth. But yeah, what are uh, what are some of the pieces that are like in the pipeline for uh, for upcoming research? Right. So I'm still working on some episodes about the Christian homeschooling movement, which is where a lot of the uh, far right radicalization begins. Um, we've talked a little bit about that already, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do a deep dive eventually. We've been a little moving a little slower this summer, but yeah, that is coming. We've been we've been teasing the homeschooling deep dive in part because it like comes up in a lot of these conversations it does. as like a cross pollination mm-hmm. point. Um, yeah, and I think I think two episodes ago uh, I cracked a joke about sixpence none the richer yeah like and the crossover success and uh that apparently prompted that prompted a note from a listener saying wait a minute sixpence none the richer was a christian band <laughs> and that fascinated me because yeah growing up in the christian world sixpence none the richer quote going mainstream was a huge thing yeah like, that was like, one of our indie darlings suddenly went big and like, mm-hmm. how did we feel about that? It was almost like, you know, you know, a, a local punk band suddenly being in like a Chevy ad. What do you, <laughs> how do you even feel about that? Um, and that teases it like what I think is a real, like the story of the Christian music industry, yeah. which is fairly young like as they go but it's a big part of this like alternative media ecosystem that we've talked about Um, Uh because some of its earliest pioneers were it were influential in the movies like um a thief in the night you know larry norman's song i wish we'd all been ready that's like an iconic part of that film Uh larry norman was essentially like the father of what we what is now called the christian music industry so like it's it's very intertwined with a lot of the cultural arcs that we're talking about. Um, it is, yeah. I so mean, that that feels like a, a a fascinatingly nerdy deep dive. Um, it will be, yeah. I yeah, I, I'll know a little more about that <laughs> when we get to it. It's a little less niche than like let's talk about Christian prairie romance. Um, yeah, yeah, but- I know. My family was big into the music of the charismatic movement, so. Um. Ah, <laughs> yes. There's there's only so many Keith Green songs you can listen to in one sitting. Sure. But, um, <laughs> They're so dramatic. <laughs> it, it's, it's a very heavy, heavy dose of drama. Yeah, those, yeah. Um, and I, we're not sure if we're joking or not, Um but it has been suggested that uh, we should have a recurring segment um, called um, Pratt Watch, um, <laughs> basically, or, or perhaps Seven Minutes to Kirk, that is basically tracking actor Chris Pratt's transformation into the world's next Kirk Cameron. Well, I mean, um, we joked about that. I don't know if that's like... That, that, that's people joking. <laughs> that, that's, that's people joking. Um, All right. And... You know, the, the idea is to sort of treat it like the the um, Journal of Atomic Scientists doomsday clock. So it's like, you know, it's, you know, how da- how much, how, in what, what level of danger does the world face? You know, it's so naming it seven minutes to Kirk might be good. It's, we're not, we're not sure how serious we are, but 
Um, it's Chris how, Pratt feels like. How close is he to transforming into the next Kirk Cameron? And how, uh, like, um, it seems like he's going to have to start losing work and he's going to have to do something that will cause him to stop losing work. And I don't know what that's going to be. Um, I mean, so for a little background for those who aren't up to date on their latest Chris Pratt news, um, Chris Pratt is in like a bunch of Marvel movies. He was, he's in guardians of the galaxy before that he played like the schleppy boyfriend of one of the characters on um, parks, parks and, and recreation, yeah. uh, parks and recreation. Yep. And, um, and he, he's has this incredibly wholesome, like sort of kind of schleppy, but doesn't take him to self too seriously. Good guy vibe um and a couple of years ago it came out that he's also a member of like hillsong church which has been controversial because of its anti um lgbt like theology right um, and there's been a lot of back and forth controversy about that but like as he's become higher and higher profile chris pratt has been um very tentatively well I don't know. It tentatively depends on who you ask, but like he's shared accounts of like how he became a Christian and, you know, his sort of salvation story in Christian media. And, you know, he's taken yeah. different award ceremonies, opportunities to tell everybody and God loves you, you know, stuff like that. It's, he's an interesting study in like the, the sort of tense relationship of Christianity as a self-perceived counterculture to fame and you know high profile like celebrity um yeah it's always but, been there and you see this arc happen a lot but but there is some flirtation with the flip far right like he, yeah. he's been he's done an instagram story where he was wearing a gadsden flag t-shirt and um it came out a while ago that his brother is a three percenter and was selling um three percenter merch <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, but it, I, I don't feel like that information is filtered really down into the public and, and it certainly ha doesn't seem to have lost him any work. Um, yeah. what Kirk Cameron did to lose work was that he was like, a, like in his early twenties and he started talking down to all of the people who ran this show to all of his cast members after he became an evangelical Christian and it became known yeah. that nobody wanted to work with him. So. And then he reappeared as like the star of various Christian films and a guy who would do videos about how the banana proves evolution is false. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I think that Chris Pratt's going to have to start losing jobs and I don't know Before what he would have to do that. Arc is, yeah. yeah. So. so that's why, you know, the, the clock is at seven minutes. It may never advance. Yeah. It may be set back at times, but much like the doomsday clock, we'll, we'll try to monitor um, Pro how, you how, know, close, yeah. how close Chris Pratt is to becoming Kirk Cameron. So, yeah, sure. Yeah. We shall see. All right. Um, on that note, um, thanks for listening. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to do, uh, it, although we touched on some grim stuff, it feels like it hasn't been quite the same. Yeah. Like nonstop fire hose of grimness right. that some of our previous episodes are um so i mean there thanks. will be more of those too but oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> have no fear have no fear um 
But uh, if you'd like to follow us online uh, or subscribe, you can go to writecast.substack.com. Uh-huh. Um, if you can subscribe, that always helps. Uh, if, if nothing else, we the number of uh, terrible Christian books and um, and deep cut scholarly analyses that we end up accumulating is uh, is hefty, and your, your subscriptions <laughs> are always appreciated. Yes, we that, that does that pays the Amazon bill. Um, yeah, and would would enable us to do more episodes if we could get more yeah, more subscriptions. And, um, um, and um, and if you know you want to follow us on Twitter as well, we're there at um, C Rightcast on Twitter. Um, and uh, Christian Rawls, uh, your account on Twitter, and then yeah. Ethan, my account on Twitter mm-hmm. is also where we do a lot of uh, chat. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and we'd love to hear from you, and uh, we hope to see you again next episode. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.